Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 23, please. In this chapter, David is once again on the move, and you can... You're only hearing these sermons maybe once a month, maybe once every six weeks when, when Pastor Walton is gone, but um, the context is going to be the same for a while. David's fleeing Saul. He's hiding out somewhere. Saul is completely obsessed with killing his successor, David. But as I read this text, I want you to pay attention, of course, to all of it. All of Scripture is God-breathed. But I want you to particularly take note as I read, and if you, if you write in your Bible, then underline this word. How many times hand is mentioned here? That's what's called a light word or a leading word, a word that's repeated over and over again to give you a hint as to what the book or what the story is all about. So we're going to see David's hand, and we're going to see Abiathar's hand, and we're going to see Saul's hand. This chapter is all about a power struggle. And the question that that repeated use of hand is going to raise is whose hand will prevail? Listen now to the reading reading of God's word, 1 Samuel 23. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock. And struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, He gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, 
And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, strengthening his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh in the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told to me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I'll go with you. And if he's in the land, I'll search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they rose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshemont. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. When Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I think for most of us, when we think of Reformed Christianity, and I think if you've been around this church for a while, you know that terminology of Reformed Christianity, we would fall into that category, but I think most of us tend to think of the Scottish Presbyterians. Scotland really was the chief exporter of Reformed theology through the spread of Presbyterianism. But there were a lot of other pockets of lesser-known Reformed peoples, Calvinists, we'd call them, who were influential in their own right. And one such group was the French Huguenots, or as we'd say down here, the French Huguenots. The Huguenots were committed to Reformed Protestantism. But they lived in France and uh, an area that was predominantly Catholic. And so they were, for much of uh, the time, just following the Reformation. They were heavily persecuted and they were spread about. But they began to grow in number to a point that by the 1560s, they actually made up about 10% of the population of France. And they were growing so fast, and they were getting put in positions of such power that the French throne began to be concerned, and particularly Catherine de' Medici. She had been the queen of France, and then her son, Charles IX, succeeded her. And she started to see that the Huguenots appeared to be having an influence upon Charles. And so, but working behind the scenes, she instigated a plot to assassinate the Huguenot leader, Caligny. 
And that was followed by one of the bloodiest massacres in history, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, when an estimated 100,000 Huguenots were killed. One story that's come from the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was of a well-known Huguenot preacher, Pierre du Moline. He was fleeing from the Catholic persecutors, and as he fled, he was preserved by the most unlikely of rescuers. He climbed into a brick oven, one that hadn't been used in some time. He climbed in there and felt certain that the Catholic persecutors would find him as they were searching high and low for this man. As he hid in this oven, in the kind providence of God, a spider crawled into the opening of it and wove a web across it. And as it did, dust blew up on the web, making it so dingy that it looked like nobody had entered that oven in quite some time. In fact, the the Catholic persecutors, one of them walked by and carelessly remarked, no one could have been in that stove for several days. You know, Scripture and history both testify that God has often raised up unlikely rescuers to protect and preserve his people and his purpose. It was true for Moline as a spider rescued him. And it's true in our passage today. We actually see two unlikely rescues here. First, we see the Kelahites, and they should have been rescued by Saul. We're going to come back to that. Saul should have been the rescuer. David, it wasn't his job to do that, and yet God called David to go and rescue. And then we see that when David and his life are in jeopardy, God sends an even more unexpected or unlikely rescuer in David's archenemy, the Philistines. The people who hated David because a few years before he had killed their champion warrior, Goliath. What we learn in this text is that God delights to show his power by using weak and unlikely characters to rescue his people. God delights to show his power by using weak and unlikely characters to rescue his people. Now, remember our context. For the last few chapters, David's been a, a fugitive fleeing from Saul. He's been nothing, good, nothing but good to Saul. He's Saul's son-in-law. But nothing he can do gets Saul off his back. In total, David's going to spend more than a decade fleeing Saul's efforts to kill him. Now, remember, when we're reading this text, those chapter divisions, they were only added about a thousand years ago. So this text immediately follows what we saw a month or so ago when I preached on this, when King Saul has just killed the entire village of Nob because one of their priests had assisted David. And David was heartbroken that that had happened. And David is once again fleeing. The first thing I want to take note of here is David's faith in God's ability to rescue. David's faith in God's ability to rescue. Like I said, ever since David defeated Goliath, his life has been one affliction after another. Saul has gone insane, and he's obsessed with killing David, and so David's been a fugitive. 
Saul's vindictiveness against David is so severe that back in chapter 21, we saw David thought it was safer to be among the Philistines at Gath. And remember, that was Goliath's hometown than it was to be under Saul. I want to stop here and highlight something really easy to miss. Trials and afflictions do not happen by chance. They happen by the will of a sovereign, wise God. And if you don't know that, and you're reading through these passages, you're going to just read chapter after chapter, and you're going to say, you know, that David just has rotten luck, doesn't he? We don't believe in luck. Luck is a pagan idea that no Christian can subscribe to because it, it, luck believes there is some impersonal force out there that just happens to be directing the affairs of this world. Good luck cannot preserve your life one second longer than God wills, and bad luck cannot end your life one second sooner than God wills. Christians would do well to banish the word luck from our vocabulary because nothing happens by luck. Everything that comes to pass happens according to the sovereign plan of a wise God. What this means for us then, if God is sovereign, even over our trials, Every trial you and I face is a stewardship. It is an opportunity to redeem it, to use it to the glory of God by responding in faith, or we can lean on our own understanding. We can trust in ourselves. We can be faithless and not glorify God. So the question surrounding every trial is, will I trust God? Will I have faith in God to rescue me, or will I take matters into his own hands? Now, in the recent past, David has not been a very good steward of his trials. Just think back to chapter 21. That's where things really started to go south. David went to Ahimelech, the high priest. David was fleeing Saul. Uh, But he told Ahimelech, I need food and I need weaponry because I am on a top secret mission for Saul. And David lied to him. And Ahimelech got murdered along with all those priests at Nob because David had deceived him. And now David is facing another affliction. He receives word that the Philistines have invaded Keilah. Keilah was about three miles from the cave of Adalam where David had been. And so just imagine we're right here at 335 Sam's Point Road. Keilah would be about where Publix is, all right? And the Philistines have come to Keilah, and verse 1 tells us they're, they're robbing the threshing floor. So that's where you take your crops once you have brought them in from the field, and that's where you start to, to prepare them, either to store them or to sell them. And so the Keilahites have done all this work, and now the Philistines have come to reap where they didn't sow. This isn't just an attack on the livelihood of the Keilahites. It's an attack on their lives because once their crops are gone, it's not like they can just run to Publix and buy more. This is going to cause a famine. It's not David's job to stop the Philistines. Do you remember Saul's job description? Way back in... In 1 Samuel 9, verse 16, God says, He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. This is explicitly Saul's job. But Saul's too busy. He's dealing with the priests at Nob. 
so he's too busy to take care of this. Now for David, it would have been politically advantageous to let the Philistines come and whoop Keilah because then Saul would look bad. He would be seen as a failure. But I want you to see David's faith on display. Here's David. He's on the run from a madman. He's got 600 men to think for, to provide for, and yet he shows deep concern for God's people at Keilah. He shows deep concern for the vulnerable and the oppressed. He could have overlooked their need. He could have focused only on himself, but the potential for the Philistines to do great harm to God's people couldn't be overlooked. And so David understands that no matter what is going on in his life, our faith must work itself out in love for God and neighbor. That's a great exhortation to us because for most of us, when we go through a trial, we can become very selfish. It it tends to dominate our thoughts. It tends to dominate our lives, and we can become very self-concerned, and we're too busy thinking about us to think about others. Let me say from nine years of pastoral ministry, I'm going to guess about a thousand hours of counseling others. If you want to be miserable in your afflictions, make life all about you. That is the key to misery, is to make life all about you. If you want to thrive in the midst even of affliction, then make your life about serving God and serving others. That's what David does here. We see David's faith on display as he serves God and neighbor. We also see David's faith on display in his prayerfulness. Seasons of busyness, which certainly David was in, and seasons of affliction at times can become seasons of prayerlessness for so many of us. Notice that neither busyness nor affliction become an excuse not to pray. Verse 2, David hears what the Philistines are doing at Keilah. He inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to go and attack the Philistines to save Keilah. Then in verse 3, David went and told his men, and they said, You're gonna, you want us to go and fight there? We're, we're afraid of Judah, and now you're telling us to go wage war against another enemy? So what does David do? He inquired of the Lord again in verse 4. And then in verse 9, we're told Abiathar's there. He's got the linen ephod, and David inquired of the Lord again. Now, there, there's a lot we don't know about the ephod much more that we don't know than what we do know, but it was a cloth garment that the priest would wear. And as the priest wore that garment, it was, it was a picture of him having access to God as the high priest. Now, you and I don't have an ephod, and we don't need an ephod. Not because we don't need to know God's will, but you and I have a better high priest than David did. We have one who is better than Abiathar, and we have greater privilege than David, even when it comes to prayer. Look over with me at Hebrews 4 for a moment. You're going to love Hebrews. It's great. But Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14, Abiathar was David's high priest. Who is our high priest? It's Jesus. And in verse 14, It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If David was a man of prayer, shouldn't we pray all the more because we have a greater high priest than he did? And we have greater access to the throne than he did. And for those of you who are like me and sometimes allow busyness to justify prayerlessness, it doesn't. It's just the opposite. Martin Luther was known to say, I have so much to do today, I won't be able to get through it with less than three hours of prayer. Now, most of us, if we're honest, we would say the exact opposite. I have so much to do today that I don't have but three minutes for prayer. I, don't, I can't afford the time. Reflecting on Luther there, Charles Spurgeon said, Praying hinders no man's journey. In other words, you never get less done by prayer. So David evidenced faith by prayer. And then, when he got answers from God, he evidenced faith by acting in obedience to God's command. Now, I can imagine that after having prayed, God, do you, I'm not supposed to go to Keilah, am I? Yes, you are. You're supposed to go protect them. I, I, I might would have said, God, You've heaped all these afflictions on me, and now you want me to go pick a fight with the Philistines? I just want to go back to tending sheep. David trusted that what God commanded him to do, God would give him the grace to accomplish. You know, we need to realize faith doesn't just obey. It trusts in God for help in obedience. You know, some of God's commands are weighty. They're so weighty, you and I cannot do them on our own. And some of you are facing things that you know you cannot do, and it may cause you to want to despair. I just think of a couple weeks ago looking at go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's a weighty task. Or husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the... You want me to love her like that? Wives, respect your... You want me to respect him? God says, yes. Yes, I do. That's exactly what I've called you to do. Let me ask you, beloved, as we look at this, what commands of God do you balk at? Think I could never do that. Faith grabs hold of God's capacity to enable us to obey. So we don't obey on our own. We obey knowing that what Jesus said is true. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Therefore, abide in me. David trusted God that what God commanded him to do, God would give him the grace to accomplish. Now, do you see how David's faith is increasing? We look back at chapter 21, and David took matters into his own hands. He lied to Ahimelech. He deceived the king of Gath by pretending that he was insane. Here he trusts God. Trials and faith, uh, trials and, and afflictions test and prove the validity the authenticity of our faith. As we saw last time, David stands as a picture. David stands as a type of the Lord Jesus. But remember, as we saw last time also, there's one who stands opposite David. 
and he's a type as well. And I say this with great fear and trembling to use this word because some of your minds are going to go in all sorts of different directions, but Saul stands as a type of Antichrist. I don't mean the Antichrist with a capital A, but one who is Antichrist, one who is opposed to God, God's purposes, and God's word. And so there's Saul, and I want you to see, contrary to David, I want you to see Saul's faithlessness. Saul was king 1050 till about 1010 B.C., Scholars' best estimate is that there were about two million people in Israel at that point who were under Saul's care. But every day when Saul wakes up, he has one person on his mind. That's his successor, David. And for about a 10-year period, Saul is increasingly obsessed about David. He wakes up thinking, how do I get rid of David? He goes to bed, losing sleep at night, thinking tomorrow, how can I get rid of David? His immense insecurities are all-consuming. Saul's always struggled to trust God's word. We saw that back in 1 Samuel 15 when God commanded Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, but he didn't, and he lost the throne as a result. And the problem is, Saul is really good at faith speak. Uh, Saul hears, in in our text, he hears that David's at Keilah and that David's hemmed in. And listen to what Saul says in verse 7. God has given him into my hand, for he's shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then you go to verse 21, the Ziphites turn David over. They're scared that what happened at Nob is going to happen to them. So they turn David over to Saul, and Saul says to him, may you be blessed by the Lord. Saul's a master at religious speech, but his life betrays him. I want you to consider these evidences that Saul's not a man of faith. He has no concern for the task that God's given him. His job was to spare the Philistines. No, excuse me, to, to wipe out the Philistines. Well, they came to Keilah. He had no interest in going to Keilah until David was there. He has no regard for the law of God. He's devoted his life to killing an innocent man. And he doesn't trust the sovereignty of God at all. How do we see that? Well, we see it in bitterness and anger. Bitterness is what happens when we think God got it wrong in the past, and he's bitter at David because David's going to succeed him. And we see it in his anxiety. He's constantly worried about the future. Anxiety is what happens when we think God's going to get it wrong in the future. Bitterness is about the past. Anxiety is about the future. Saul has no confidence in the sovereignty of God. And the worst part of it is he has no idea that he's not a man of faith. With all the gods speak, he seems to assume the Lord is on his side, but he has never stopped to ask the question, am I on the Lord's side? We need to be aware of that, that Saul is the patron saint of so many professing Christians today, and maybe even some of us who have the answers, who have mastered God speak, but never really ask the question, am I trusting in Christ? Saul's like many churchgoers today who accomplish almost nothing in service to Christ. They they live lives of of self-indulgence, and then they expect to come to the end of their lives and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Saul is completely deceived. He should have asked himself, am I truly in the faith? Well, let's pause for a second. Before I read scripture, I told you 
keep an eye on that word hand, that it's giving us a hint that this passage is all about a power struggle and that the question's going to be, whose hand is going to prevail? Will it be David's hand? Will it be Saul's hand? As we come to the end, this final section, the story's going to hit a fever pitch. This is where you really would love to have a movie about this scene. As Saul's men are going on one side of the mountain, they're trying to get to David, and David is fleeing from them. But there's something fascinating here. We see God's invisible hand of rescue in this passage. I love it. It it talks about David's hand. It talks about Saul's hand. There's not a word about God's hand, and yet God's hand is the one directing this entire passage. It's the one that's directing everything that comes to pass. And so there's David. He's gone into the wilderness of Maon, uh, five miles south of Ziph, and Saul's men are coming. And what it really looks like, if you study the text and you study where we think Maon may be, It looks like there's a mountain and the men are coming around both sides of the mountain. Saul's men are coming around both sides of the mountain. David is on the far side of the mountain and on the other side of the mountain is the Dead Sea. And so David has nowhere to go and it looks like David's luck has run out. And suddenly another unlikely rescuer appears and it's the Philistines. This messenger comes to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And if we read this with blind, unbelieving eyes, we could say, David finally got some good luck. But we do far better to read providence with the clear vision that comes from faith. And what do we see? We see that what God aims to teach us in this passage is that there is an endless variety of ways that God can rescue his people. His hand is not too short to save. And even David's arch enemies could be his rescuer. What a lesson for us. As believers, we must learn to trust the hand of God as he superintends our lives. And we need to learn not to be bitter about the past or anxious about the future. Simply to trust his hand. You know, sometimes we can see the hand of God working out the providence of our lives, but most of the time we won't. What do we do when God's hand is invisible, when we can't see his hand? We trust his heart. If David could provide God to, trust God to provide an unlikely rescue, how much more can you and I, who know David's son, David's greater son, who is David's Lord. He didn't just come to save one village from its enemies. He came to save elect from every nation. He didn't come wielding a sword and spear, but prayer and the word. He didn't come to raise up a kingdom of warriors, but a kingdom of priests. And he secured victory, not by spilling the blood of his enemies, but by allowing his blood to be spilled so that his enemies could be called friends. As much as David could trust God, you and I have more reason to trust. Where do you need rescue in your life? You can trust God and his invisible hand that he is up to things that you can't even imagine and you can't see in the midst of your broken marriage or your wayward children or a dangerous financial situation, or ongoing sin struggles, or decaying culture. All of that can seem hopeless 
when you don't have eyes of faith. But he is always present, always at work, and when you cannot see his hand, you can trust his heart. Let's pray together. Lord, we take great comfort in this passage because it reminds us that you are always superintending all the events of our life and that you do so perfectly, that at every turn you do what we would do if we know, knew what you know, and that you so watch over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads apart from your will, and all things must work together for our salvation. We thank you for all the unlikely rescuers that you send in this life, and namely for the most unlikely of rescuers, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for